This morning we are continuing to press into this theme of worship. What it means uh, to know God and, and to know ourselves in that space of, of focusing on him. We'll be in the book of 2 Corinthians if you want to turn ahead. We'll be in chapter 3 here in a little bit. And get this to go forward. About 2,500 years ago, the, the great school of Greek philosophy emerged in, in Western Europe or, or Central Europe, I guess. And the Greek philosophers charged their students that above anything else, that wisdom was to be found in knowing thyself. It's actually, I think, inscribed on one of the temples there outside Athens. And ever since, Western civilization has been looking for help in that discovery. How do we find ourselves? How do we know ourselves better? Bring that up to the present moment. It's estimated that Americans today spend in excess of $10 billion on self-help products and services to know and improve thyself, right? We, we have videos and seminars and books of all kinds. There is a story of a man who was looking for a book to help him find his true self, and so he went into one of these kind of expansive bookstores like Barnes & Noble, only to get lost among the shelves, And eventually he made his way over to a cashier and he asked the woman if she might provide him with directions to the self-help section. And she looked at him quizzically and she said, you want me to give you directions to the self-help section. That sort of defeats the purpose, doesn't it? The quest to, to be ourselves, to be comfortable in our own skin often seems elusive. And I think that's because in order to actually do this, to to know ourselves and and to become who we truly are, there are at least two conditions. The first is that we need an accurate, an honest picture of who we really are. And that's not always easy to arrive at, right? We've got blind spots and, and things we're defensive about. But secondly, and probably just as important, is that once we arrive at that clear picture of who we are, we need to have someone or some place or something that will love us as we really are. More often than not, we only address one of these two conditions. Sometimes we at least temporarily find that sense of love or security but we do it by attaching it to something external to who we are. Right? We, we seek to kind of cultivate a particular image that we can present to others. We work hard. We achieve things in order to gain the affirmation of others. But of course, when circumstances change, and they always eventually do, then our sense of, of worth and identity changes with them. On the other hand, sometimes we we strive to get a better handle on who we truly are 
only to struggle with whether that person is actually capable of of being loved. If we possess just self-consciousness, just an acute awareness of who we are on its own, that can actually be more troubling. Right? It can lead us to wonder if, if someone can, can see who we really are and, and know what we think, perhaps they might run away. So where is it that we find both of these conditions satisfied at once? Well, I think one of the stunning claims that the Bible makes is that God knows who we are inside and out. He has a more accurate picture of us than than we do. And yet he remains resolute. He remains faithful. He remains committed to loving us nevertheless. And so I think that the place where we grow into the, the truth of who we are, where we recover that sense of self, and where we experience it with our whole being, is actually in the context of worship. It's through the practice of worship. Now, worship is not foremost about ourselves, right? Worship draws our attention, at least in the first movement, away from self. Right? It draws our attention, it uses our language, it uses our bodies to focus on who God is. Even to cultivate our, our desires for him. But as we look upon the living God, worship also helps us to see ourselves. Throughout the history of the church, theologians have called this double knowledge. The more we know God, the more accurately we know ourselves and vice versa. This morning I want to take a look at a few examples in the Bible of those who, by looking at the face of God, contemplating who he truly is, found an increasing freedom to to be themselves in God's presence. So let me pray for us as we look into the word of God. Lord, we all long to be at peace with who we are. We I presume every one of us know the struggle and the anxiety that comes with feeling tension and and torn and and unsure of who we are in in deep places. Lord, thank you that you knew us before we were born. You've known each and every day of our lives. And with great purpose, you have created us. And with great love and compassion and mercy, you continue to to know us, and to call us to know you, to call us into the freedom of knowing ourselves in you, Jesus. What I pray as I teach this morning, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. I think probably all of the Western world is at least captivated by the Old Testament prophets. 
There's something remarkable about this, this group, and particularly remarkable about them in the way that they relate to God, the way they hear words from God, the way they argue with God in some cases. The Old Testament prophets seem to have this kind of face-to-face connection with God. And probably the the textbook example we think of is Moses. Moses, who who boldly and courageously meets with God atop Mount Sinai, receives the law and, and leads his people out of slavery. But if you go back to a much earlier point in Moses' story, you find a very different person initially. We find a Moses who is troubled, a Moses who lacks confidence, a Moses who is impulsive. And remember that Moses grew up as a Hebrew young man in the Egyptian royal household. Talk about confusing. There's, There's two different identities Two different poles on on who he is and his loyalties. So we're told in Exodus chapter 2 that that Moses was struggling to to figure out where he belonged and and who he was meant to serve. Until one day he has a kind of emotional explosion. He is out surveying the the work of, of probably the building of one of these pharaoh's homes or temples. And he sees an an Egyptian slave master beating one of the Hebrew servants. And Moses is overcome. He erupts in a violent rage and he kills the Egyptian man. And uh, and overcome with with a a sense of self-consciousness and an awareness of what's happened, he buries the body in the sand and he hopes that that no one has seen. But some days later... It's apparent that others in the camp notice what's happened. And we're told in Exodus chapter 2 that Moses then became afraid. And Moses thought to himself, what I did must have become known. And so for the next many years, Moses runs from being known. He takes the the anger of that moment, the confusion, the shame, and he seeks to run away from it. His life becomes about hiding and leaving that past behind. We're told that he he heads deep into the Sinai Desert, a few hundred miles at least, from, from where kind of the Egyptian civilization left off. And he starts a new life there. He he marries. He becomes a shepherd for his father-in-law's flocks. Until one day he is wandering through the desert and he encounters a bush on fire. And from within it, from within the flames, comes a voice that remembers Moses. It remembers him and it says, Moses Moses, and it connects him to his past that he's tried so hard to forget. This is what God says when he speaks to him from the, from the bush that first time. Moses, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. The God of, of where you came from. But we're told at this 
Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Why does Moses turn away? God finds Moses, right? He tracks him down in the middle of absolute nowhere. But Moses isn't sure he wants to be found. Right, as, as vulnerable human beings, to be seen is uncomfortable. Think about when I want to share something that's deeply important to me, even with someone that I love, someone that I trust a great deal. When I share something deeply personal, I often have to break off eye contact. Right? I, I can't look directly at someone when I want to speak deeply about something I'm feeling. It's difficult. And so, too, we, we often turn our faces from God. Not only because we're afraid of confronting who he is, but, but I think more accurately because we're afraid of confronting ourselves in that exchange. Moses struggles to look at God because I think he struggles to believe what God will say about him struggle to say that what God says about him might actually be true. And this becomes painfully evident as that conversation in Exodus 3 continues. Right? God sees in Moses the potential for leadership. God sees uh, Moses as, as a prophet who will lead his people out of slavery. But all Moses can talk about is his reluctance, his ineptness, his insecurity at being called. What part of who you are do you have a hard time looking at? Is it possible that you, at the same time, have a hard time letting God see that part of who you are as well? It's easier just to to turn away. To begin to to know God, to worship God, is is to at least to begin to, to turn our gaze back toward those things and to him in the process. Incredibly, as the book of Exodus goes on, it describes not only God bringing physical freedom to the captive Israelites, but we see that God brings an increasing sense of freedom to Moses as a person and as a leader. Moses becomes more fully who he is meant to be as the story progresses. So much so that 30 chapters later, Moses comes full circle. He goes back into Egypt, he leads the people out, and he arrives back at the same mountain where that burning bush first spoke his name. And by the time he arrives back there, he is a changed person. No longer hiding from God, but in fact arguing with God, demanding pleading with God that God would show him more of himself. In Exodus 33, there's this incredible exchange where the people have sinned against God. Moses goes before God to intercede for them. And in the process, Moses says, you need to be with me. You need to go before me. In fact, God, you need to show me your glory. And incredibly, God agrees. 
with this request. And he agrees with Moses, it says, on the grounds that he is pleased with him. He says, Moses, I know you by name, so I will show you my glory. And so God causes his glory to to come near to Moses that day on the mountain. And again, this time, Moses doesn't turn his face away. Instead, we're told in chapter 34, Moses bows down before the presence of God and he worships. In that moment, Moses is in the presence of God, and he's not afraid. He's not afraid of who God is. He's not afraid of who he is any longer. Instead, he is captivated by the glory of who God is. I wonder what it would mean for you to hear God say, Dom, or or Jan, or Bill, I am pleased with you. I know you by name. I want to to show myself to you. What would it mean for us to hear and know that God speaks to us in that way? How would that change who we are? Our sense of self. What's fascinating about this encounter on Mount Sinai is that as Moses sees more of of the glory of who God is, right? What what happens is Moses sees God, but Moses himself is physically changed in appearance. And again, this double knowledge. The more we know who God is, the more we are changed. Moses, we're told, comes down the mountain. He comes to where the rest of Israel is encamped. And they discover that his face is glowing, right? It's, it's refre- reflecting the, the radiant glory of God. And that reflected glory is so extraordinarily bright that Moses has to put a veil over his face as he goes about his day-to-day life there in the camp. And he, he walks around veiled, until he can go back into the tent of meeting, the place where he, he meets with God's presence, and then he can, can remove the veil and again meet there with God, face to face, we're told, unveiled. What would it be like to, to have a persona, a personality, a life that is unveiled, that, that shines with the reflected glory of our God. How many of us could imagine meeting with God in that way? The description there in Exodus 34 seems, seems beautiful, but I'll confess it seems almost otherworldly. Right? It's, it's hard for me to relate to. Until I come to a passage that the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 17 and 18, where he says this. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Here I think he's speaking about the Holy Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, 
are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. What's Paul saying here? Well, the Apostle Paul, not too dissimilar from Moses, is someone who experienced a deep personal transformation over many years of his discipleship. He had a past to deal with, just like Moses. He was Saul, the persecutor, the murderer of God's people. He He had to come to terms with that. And also, similar to Moses, in this second letter to the Corinthians, he also has a an especially difficult season of leadership that he is going through, where people are asking hurtful questions about his reputation. In particular, they're questioning his authority and his identity as a leader, as an apostle. And even though Paul hasn't met with God atop Sinai like Moses did, Paul says an even greater kind of transformation has come to him through the outpouring of God's Spirit. Verse 17. Through the work of Jesus, the the Holy Spirit has poured out freedom for all of God's people. So that now, he says, verse 18, we may all see God's face unveiled. No longer is a a face-to-face relationship with God reserved for for prophets like Moses, or even just reserved for apostles like Paul. Paul says it is the invitation God gives to every believer. Right? The Spirit is poured out on all flesh. Sons and daughters, your servants will, will prophesy and testify as the Spirit is poured out on them, Amos will say. And we'll see in the book of Acts. And so now... To each one of us, God has given this invitation. God has given us a new self. It's being defined, Paul says, as we look upon Christ. As we contemplate his glory, it changes who we are. In the second chapter of this Emotionally Healthy Spirituality book, there's a great quote from a famous Hasidic rabbi, the Rabbi Zusia. And near the end of his life, He said, in the coming world, meaning when when Messiah comes, when God culminates history, in that coming world, they will not ask me, why were you not Moses? They will ask me, why were you not Zeusia? Why were you not yourself? I think Paul would say something similar here. When Messiah comes, when Jesus comes in his fullness. When we encounter the freedom and power of his spirit, we are invited to live into our God-given identities. And the way that happens is by contemplating the glory of God revealed in Jesus. To know ourselves means looking at Jesus. Listening to Jesus. Walking every day, every morning, every afternoon, every evening in step with him, 
in step with his voice of affirmation and love, in step with his, his voice of correction and direction of who we are meant to be. Contemplate Jesus. And we are transformed through the work of his spirit. This morning, we are invited to behold the person of Jesus Christ and his glory as we're invited to the table of Jesus. Jesus often says in the Gospel of John that that his greatest glory, his true glory, will, will only be revealed when he's lifted up before all people, when he gives himself away in the act of sacrifice and death on the cross. That is his glory. And this table expresses the essence of that glory. Today, the table is set with a meal of God's own body and blood. And Jesus invites us to know ourselves by feeding upon him. Feeding upon his glory and his love and his faithfulness to us even to the point of death itself.